Hey, I'm Bob Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts and stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's seeing driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. The DJ Bob Show. Pop culture, past and present. And now, here is your host, DJ Bob. When I started doing this show, I never thought that I would be able to talk to people such as this. People that, when I started this show, they were just a name. Now I have a contact and a face and a voice and a connection with these people that I grew up watching. And this interview is no exception. Craig Bartlett created Hey Arnold, created Dinosaur Train, worked on PB's Playhouse and tons of other stuff. And we got him here for an hour talking about Hey Arnold, the Christmas episode, everything about Hey Arnold, some Dinosaur Train stuff. It just runs the gamut. And it's a good way to celebrate my birthday, which is today. Happy birthday to me. Enjoy it. And there's no cake afterwards. So you're out of luck. So, Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been years in the making, but I'm glad we're here. Yep. I'm so glad we're here. So, what is something that you wish people knew about you and your career that you just want to let people know about? Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, my career has been full of surprises. And uh, one of the things is I, I feel like I really should always kind of keep the faith that something will always happen next. You know, all I have to do is kind of keep, keep my, uh, doors and windows open and kind of keep keep an eye out for opportunity and it will present itself again and again. Um, and so in other words, you can kind of try to relax into it and not be anxious about what's going to happen next. But on the other hand, it's a anxiety inducing business because, you know, the, things come and go and uh, trends come and go. And, uh, you know, the, the economy gets good, it gets bad, it gets good, it gets bad. I've watched things really kind of bottom out about three times in my 30 plus years of doing this. And so I also realized I can't take anything for granted. I I, I thought at Nickelodeon when I'd, I'd finished making Hey Arnold, I thought, oh, surely they'll just ask me what I want to do next and I'll tell them and that'll be that. And I'll be making something else for them because uh, we have a relationship that works and uh, I, I pr- a proven record. I can do stuff that, that, you know, people watch and it does. Okay. But it, it really wasn't that way when Arnold finished, 
you know, whatever it was that I had, they didn't want. And so I had to kind of hit the road and try somewhere else. And that's really the the thing that I, I had to find out was that nothing is ever assured. And, and, you know, you just have to do your best and uh, hope that what you're making next is what people want. So there just, there just aren't really any assurances in this business. And just because they want something then doesn't mean they're going to want it. Yeah. 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 I also would say that I've, I've always hung on to all my stuff. You know, if I, if I have a, an idea for a show that nobody wants, I just kind of put it in a folder and save it. I don't throw anything out because sometimes uh, the opportunity comes up later and then you can do it like dinosaur train. I sat on that idea for about, I'd say a good 15 years before I got the chance to make it. Once yeah, once it was made, you would you would go, what? Really? That seems very high concept. It seems like you could just mention it in a meeting and and people would say, yeah, of course, let's make this. I can't believe somebody hasn't made it yet. But I, I pitched that thing for years. It's interesting you say that because, of course, I grew up with Hey Arnold, like so many of us did. But what was the transition like? from something like Hey Arnold did preschool content. I mean, you had some of your animation on Sesame Street, but a full show is yeah. a different beast. What is that transition like? It was interesting. I mean, a lot of time went by too. You know, I was really thoroughly, completely done with Hey Arnold by about 2002. You know, we put the Arnold movie out. That was the last thing I did for Nickelodeon for the next 14 years. You know, we put the movie out. And then I kind of was just on the street. I went over to uh, Cartoon Network and worked for a while, tried to sell them a show, uh, ended up turning it into a, a TV movie. And then the middle of the, what we call those, the aughts, you know, the first the first decade of the yeah. uh, 2000s. Um, God, very little. I mean, we were writing spec scripts and we were trying to, you know, do features and kind of nothing was going. So it was finally about, I want to say 2000 six or seven when I was I'd, got, I'd come over to Henson and I ran into um uh but by doing that I'm, I was kind of finally back working on a show for PBS and so Linda Semensky my old uh my old associate who had I'd known since uh the early since 1990 you know she worked for Nickelodeon until she left to go to cartoon uh and then she went to PBS to do preschool so I said, well, I, Linda, I've got a preschool show. This would be about 2003 or four. I said, I got a preschool show. I want to do a thing called Dinosaur Train. And I gave her the very quick pitch. And she's like, oh, it sounds great. Listen, let me let me just get all settled in at PBS and to where I finally feel like I'm in charge of what's, what we're making and the things the, the things that are that we're putting on our air are things that I develop. And then then we can do your your uh, Dinosaur Train show. So then she really about 2006 or seven, I guess, was when she said, let's do it. And I, and, and then it was time to start thinking like preschool, but I was getting a little, I'd had that experience working at Hanson's uh, Joe Purdy and I were story editors on uh, their, their mocap show called Sid, the science kid. So oh, yeah. I had yeah. gotten, you know, I'd gotten versed in, in uh PBS style uh, preschool curriculum and I liked it. I like, I, lo I love making uh, curriculum shows for, for little ones. And it's a change for sure. You know, Hey Arnold didn't have to be, it had no curriculum. It didn't have to do anything but entertain. And uh, it could take on some pretty 
heavy topics, as you know, and and uh, that's just because Nickelodeon was being very bold in the 90s and uh, letting us do what we wanted. Uh, so then it was time to do preschool in the next decade. And I I just had to make sure that, you know, the worldview of dinosaur training is much more kind of upbeat and and kind of it, it you know, we we don't we don't get into the, some of the heavy stuff that Arnold did because it's for really little ones. And I, I totally get it. And I, I just concentrated on how cool uh, science is. Uh, the curriculum for dinosaur train was uh, uh, paleontology and earth science. And then Ready, Jet, Go, the next series I made for uh, PBS was uh, also earth science and astronomy. And all those were subjects that I love. You know, I love dinosaurs. You know, when I was a kid, I loved them just like, my own kids did. And in fact, that's, I don't know if you know that dinosaur train, I came up with the idea because I was watching my three-year-old son playing with the little dinosaurs and putting them on his little toy trains. And I was like, Oh my God, dinosaurs on a train. That would be a smash. That's his show right there. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly right. I mean, that was the pitch and I knew it, you know, that's the nice thing too, is that, uh, I think I think the the ideas for a preschool show you can tell it's pretty easy to to have a feeling about it that kids are going to love it and it, it it's not that big of a stretch it was pretty easy to to uh, to do something and, and believe it would work because you know it, everything about it was right you know it was done in in uh, CGI so it was computer animated and that means you build the asset of the train and then you've got this train and you can you know run it down the tracks anywhere as it was a, extremely practical. Also, dinosaurs, are, are they look good in CG, better than humans do, in my opinion. I think low-budget CG, you're better off making dinosaurs than people because people can kind of look uh, uncanny valley. They can kind of look like plastic uh, plastic dolls. I'm a Henkin aficionado as well, an animation aficionado. So when I saw... The two worlds colliding with you and Hankin, that was the perfect match yeah. for me. Yeah, I love I, I love what the Hansons have done. I think Jim Jim Hansen's legacy is incredible. It really is. I was thinking about him. I think about him all the time, but I was just thinking about him today because somebody posted uh, a little number countdown thing from Sesame Street. And uh, Lisa, Lisa Henson told me that Jim even did those. You know, those kind of exploding numbers and stuff, all that kind yeah. of random- Jim animated those too. So picture that, okay? Picture being uh you got you're you're in charge of the Muppets, you're you're designing and building Muppets, you're you're performing as as several characters and operating the puppets and you're singing and you know writing and singing, doing songs and building uh, just there was so much for him to do and at the same time he was animating the uh countdown exploding numbers and stuff for Sesame Street. So that guy, I don't know if that guy slept at all. He was no. a he was a phenomenon. And you know, for for us, for my generation, like, did you ever like sleep after producing <laughs> all those uh, half hours? And- yeah, yeah. I mean, in the in the, the the heaviest, the busiest days for me would have been the first years of Hey Arnold, and maybe. The first years of dinosaur train, I think, and then uh, weirdly, when I when when Nickelodeon called me up, and I got back in to to make the reboot to make um, the Jungle movie for Hey Arnold in 2014, 2015, there were some years there 
the next two or three years, I was working on Arnold, Dinosaur Train, and Ready Jet Go simultaneously. So that was some pretty, that was some pretty heavy stuff. But you know, that's probably why we weren't in touch. <laughs> yeah, I was, <laughs> I was incognito. I I tended to when I have to work really hard like that. I don't mind it, but I do. I try to. I don't know. I try to take at least a day off in the weekend and not, not work seven days a week. I think that's really bad for you. And I don't, I don't really like pulling late, really late nights anymore either. I, I really, at this point I go, look, it, if I can't delegate this so that I don't have to work all, you know, seven days a week, there's something wrong with me. So it's kind of on me to not work too hard. I, and I, I totally think at this point I shouldn't be working too hard. I should be just having as much fun as I can. And something that I kind of, you know, admire and really appreciate about you and the conversation we're having is that you genuinely love talking about Arnold. Yeah, I do. More than anything else, pretty much. Yeah, that's if you've been listening to the podcasts and stuff that I've done, the interviews that I've done in the last five years. Yeah, it's about 90% Arnold, isn't it? And it's because... And you don't mind it. You no, really... not at all. Yeah, he's uh, he's like a real guy to me. And I would say that was kind of the thing that made it so sustainable for me. It was really easy to do 100 half hours of Arnold, and I would have been happy to keep going. Uh, Nickelodeon decided, okay, we have 100 of these now. You've been working steadily on this for five, six years. Why don't we Why don't we see if it can work as a this franchise the hey arnold franchise can we expand out into movies and and that kind of thing and since the first movie didn't perform as well as as it should uh then they were like okay it's done and i was like well wait wait why don't we just keep making tv it would be so easy to keep going but they they we got enough and and so arnold finished in production before i was finished telling arnold stories and if you, I don't know if you follow, I I, I posted on uh, Instagram during the pandemic, I was having Arnold and Helga write letters to each other. Of course uh, I did. Yeah, and yeah. I, this, you know, using snail mail and kind of the heroism of the USPS, you know, front frontline workers bringing mail to people when we needed it the most. That was really important to me. And so that little saga of Arnold and Helga and, and Harvey the mailman was really fun for me because it was like, well, all right, cool. They're, they're alive. They're experiencing the same thing we are, and uh, and I, I in the in the canon, it works for me too because the Jungle movie already existed, and so you know now that Arnold loves Helga, and so they're gonna they're gonna be some kind of couple, you know. It was kind of where where it it had gotten, and so I I really I think of them as they're kind of like alive, um, especially Arnold and Helga. I don't know, Grandma and Grandpa seem super real to me, Gerald. Phoebe, those these characters are, and it goes out from there. And there's so many, right? There's like 30, yeah. 40, 50. There's so many characters in that world. Uh, and so I, and I've never made anything else that was as popular. You know, people, people really, uh, they really love those characters for whatever reason. And so I think that's why I, I'm so happy to keep, uh, you know, trying things with it and and talking to people about it because uh, I know I know how much they love them. They really do. They love they love those characters. I'm really happy with, with Arnold. You know, Arnold especially. 
it really means the world to me because as a kid, you know, I'm in a wheelchair. I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, so I couldn't really play outside that much. And the TV was my friend. And to see these characters doing things that I couldn't necessarily do, it was yeah. like living vicariously through them. And it was really cool. It meant a lot to me. Yeah, I'm glad. You know, I, I and... uh that's the other thing that's really cool about this now, 30 years later, or yeah, I mean, yeah, something like that. 25 years since it came out on TV um, is that uh, the people who were children uh, now are adults and they can talk, they can talk to me about it on an adult level and tell me, you know, that people have write stuff and they, they do art and they, they, they become animators and they become storytellers and stuff. Even people, I'm, I'm amazed how many people say, and that's why I'm a, a saxophone player. You know, <laughs> that was my introduction to jazz. And so, uh, or classical music or any of the things that we we showed kids, even though I know it wasn't, it wasn't that original. Yeah. It, just, it was just of its time. And we, we uh, I think we did come up with a pretty kind of hip uh, product, you know, Jim's Jim's music makes the and and the art direction also, but Jim's music and the art direction make it very fun to listen to and, and watch, uh, and and I think that's why it holds up too. Is that uh, it's very detailed, a very detailed world, and and the style of animation that we chose was uh, not not the kind of minimalism that uh, Cartoon Network was doing. Something that was more kind of. The, the the Cal Arts thing was was more minimalistic and you know, yeah. think of design like design and sensibility of say uh, the Powerpuff Girls. Um, we were doing something that was much more weirdly handmade and and gritty and and uh, it was about the details. That was that was that was the thing I wanted to do in this book. It was so funny. I was talking about a year or two ago. I was talking with the new host of Blue's Clues uh, okay. when they brought it back. Yeah. And he was talking to me about how seeing Mr. Wynn have a country career inspired oh, yeah. him. And like seeing someone like him have like we went into this 30 minute love fest about Hey Arnold. So it's still in the family and now he's Wow. In that landscape, too. It's really cool. Yeah, I, I'm really pleased about how well Mr. Wynn went over with the Vietnamese-American community and with the Asian community. Uh, just kind of a representation that they appreciated. And uh, they could tell something authentic was going on because Bowen Coleman is so obviously a Vietnamese person. You know, his accent is is uh, uh, kind of part of the Part of the fun of that character you know he he, he sometimes it's he, he, i had to write write things that, that he could say you know and uh and he you know the what can i say i can't take i i, I will take credit for the christmas special uh because i know i worked really hard on it but i really have to give credit to steve vixton for coming up with that idea the idea that that we would go uh, it would it would turn into a story about tr trying to reunite Mr. Wynn with his long lost daughter, and the the fall of Saigon. Uh, that was bold, you know. That was really out of left field, 
And I, I when I think about it, it's stuff like that. Even for me, just creating a, a situation where the Steve Vixens of the world could work comfortably and pitch ideas like that. That was my contribution. I made it possible for Steve just to work, work and be himself for five, six years with me uh, and get all the great stories I got out of that relationship. You know, that that's that was kind of my greatest contribution, I think, was just getting these people to come in and, and have a, a, a good, safe environment to do this work. What is something that standards and practices wouldn't let you do? Hmm. Well, let's see. You know, we weren't it wasn't we weren't supposed to mention death and there were no guns. And actually, I think even it was a no gun, no knife uh, policy. And uh, and and we couldn't mention death and people couldn't be killed. But by the time, you know, so, for example, mugged, no one has a weapon. They just kind of haul Arnold into an alley and toss him around. And that was scary and violent enough. So I was like, that's fine. I don't need them to have knives or guns. I And I can understand that, too, if that was Nickelodeon's policy, uh, a, a complete no gun policy. I'm like, well, I, I can I can deal with that. But we did want to once in a while mention death because we thought that was funny. Uh, uh, monkey business, Helga believes that she is kind of turning into a monkey and it will kill her. And uh, uh, when she thinks she's got monkey nucleosis. Um, and so we couldn't say death. So we just said expiration. And it was it was made that that actually made it even funnier. You know, Mr. Mr. Simmons, when he's giving his little slideshow. At the start of that episode, he goes, you know, leading to, you know, sickness and and ultimately expiration. And then, you know, it was funny. And then she goes to the library and she looks it up and it shows the the little grave and it says expiration. So you're laughing. You're already laughing going, well, you know, we, we know exactly what that means. So that's what we would do. We would just kind of do workarounds. And then, uh, you know, if you think about it. And by the time I made uh, the Jungle movie, they didn't seem to mind. Uh, La Sombra and all his uh, gang, well, no, the ones who stayed behind at the compound apparently get like tied up and I don't know what happens to them. But, uh, you know, the ones who go with La Sombra up the up the mountain to catch Arnold and, and Helga and Gerald, they all die. And so they told us, I was like, I, I kind of, I just thought, well, that's what, that was kind of our original plan. La Sombra would be truly evil. And then kind of by his own, um, uh, you know, by their own uh, uh, actions, it, they die. You know, Arnold doesn't kill him, but, uh, but they do die. And so they, they told us, standards and practices said, when, if you remember that, they kind of go through that like gauntlet, you know, that through all yeah. those the traps, um, they said, when when all like I don't know like the guy gets shot full of arrows, you just hear him groaning. So it's like he could be perhaps alive. And and the same thing happened when all those rocks fell on the rest of them. Well, for God's sake, of course they're crushed to death. But um, but we just had them going like uh, you know groaning at the end of that shot. And I thought, fine, if that's if that's what it takes to satisfy standards and practices, that doesn't wreck my story. So that was that's what happened. And then as La Sombra, yeah, man. That dude falls thousands of feet to his death. So uh, they seemed okay with that. And I, I don't kind of understand what, what had happened or changed in the time we first were making Hey Arnold and when we made the Jungle movie, but they seemed to have kind of relaxed about even characters dying. And I, that's kind of way outside of our normal 
the storytelling in the jungle movie is is uh extreme you know yeah it's a, it's a wild wild fable you know it's super extreme mm-hmm. and uh i remember watching it and thinking they outdid themselves it's it's so yeah. great uh thank you yeah you know if the if so many of the things that i tried to do on hey arnold when i was trying them i thought oh boy yeah, have we gone way too far? You know, is this is this just ridiculous or is it going to be good? The things that happened in Parents' Day feel that way to me too. And in the journal, all three of those stories were kind of like a, you could kind of call them a, a, a parent's trilogy that where Arnold learns about what happened to them. Then he gets the journal and he learns even more and, and gets a clue where they went. And then in the Jungle movie, he literally goes and wakes them up and brings them home. All those are really wild uh fables that that have kind of crazy plots and uh i'm it's just a, it's i don't know i can't even i'm just so grateful that uh the the kids who watched these things really loved it and they didn't they didn't go ah brother you know this has gotten way too corny or this is just too ridiculous for me to keep following this they were like yeah bring it you know everybody really liked <laughs> But it's like we talk about real life issues and we talk about the Christmas episode, but then there's something so kind of sweet and wholesome about there's an episode in the last season about Phoebe embarrassed to fart in public. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like, so it runs the gamut of what, not just kids, but people go through in their lives yeah yeah I, I, exactly they're, they're they're usually grounded in something that a kid can really relate to and so uh, i i always was trying to make sure that that happened as well so even if something uh crazy happened or uh you know like things things got way into the realm of fantasy i, I think it always had something grounding it in you know the, the the kind of wishing and yearning that kids have for things that they that they they'll never get or or things that are really elusive they can't quite put their hand on, finger on uh, uh you know what it is but they uh you know that that kind of like yearning for something that you'll never have is is probably what drives everything on hey arnold so what you need to know for this next little side here is that i'm from New York, not the city, but New York State, and we get a lot of snow. So every time it snows, I go, I hate the snow. (laughs) (laughs) So you, (laughs) but every time it snows, I hate the snow. I so when when you hear that people sort of quote thing that you and your friends wrote or did or composed is how did that make you feel uh it's the best it's the best and that's that's where the the feedback loop only gets stronger you know even though a lot of time has passed the the uh the memories are still quite sharp in the in the minds of the 20 30 somethings who are responding to it now you know, the, the, a lot of things have happened. I mean, now you can go out and get, you've been able to get the complete series on, uh, on DVD for probably a decade, but, um, the last five years you've been able to get the, um, 
the ultimate collection, which contains all the movies. I've and, got that. Yep. Yeah. And, and the even kind of cool odds and ends, the, the, uh, the original clay Arnold and, uh, uh, I forget what else. So some, some funny behind this, some good stuff. And so it, it, at this point, a person can, a 30 year old can sit down and marathon through all hundred half hours and then just do it again. People, People have a much deeper, uh, more deeper. They can take a deeper dive now than they could when they were kids. Also, I believe that if you're, say, a nine-year-old watching Hey Arnold when it was new for the first time, um, the the a child has that kind of reptile brain that can just really deeply remember. You know, like they just remember memorize the thing. And and I, you know, I, I felt that way about stuff. I would literally, I would. I think I was probably like two when it aired, Mm -hmm. but it aired for so long that I caught it. Yeah. I remember when episodes were new and I remember watching the finale when it aired and just buying the movie on release day and just being (laughs) a part of it. It's just so good. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that what a what a cool phenomenon and then you know and then later everybody can look back on the whole thing and take kind of a long view that they couldn't take when it was a new show so the long view is even better than the initial reception that it got i think it was very well received by kids nickelodeon felt that it was a hit and you know they i remember my bosses were wonderful they were like oh you know this we love it 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 will find an audience we have complete faith in it you don't have to worry and so for the first several years I really assumed that they would just pick it up for season after season. And that, that allows for you to relax into the work and, and just have a good time. I mean, as much as you can, there's a lot of work to do. It's not like it was easy, but, but um, we still were able to have a very good time. I remember the middle of that run, you know, like seasons uh, three and four uh, being just feeling really good. Come to work every day. And you know, keep moving the ball down the field. It was it was great fun. I loved showing the episodes as they got finished, and that was something. Oh yeah, from from episode one to episode one hundred, we we would get the. I would go master the tape. You know, I'd go to a facility in Hollywood, and they would put the two elevens together into one half hour and, and build the kind of bumpers and the main, put the main title, and we compose the credits and and I'd watch it all down and double check everything. And uh, then I would take a tape of it back to the office and say, usually on a Friday at the end of the day, and I'd pop the cassette in and we would sit in chairs and on the floor around a big TV and just watch the whole episode down. That was really a cool part of the experience, you know, just sharing the the fun of making it with, with everybody who had made it. And it was cool too. You could kind of go, "Hey, what a great storyboard, Kelly!" You know what I mean? Like when when uh, something happened, you could you could credit the the uh, the artist who had done it or the the actor. And and so it, yeah, it, that that was like a thing that sustained us. It kept it it kept us going and made made the work fun. Now, wasn't there an interesting story about screening the Christmas special? <laughs> yeah, we would. We had a, a the, they would throw these legendary parties. You know, they'd book some fancy club in 
in Hollywood or something, and we would go to the place and the Nickelodeon parties, there was a lot of booze. And so people would be whooping it up. And I just wanted to show that episode. We had just, we had just finished it. I know I had only gone and made that tape like that week or something. And so I was really interested in everybody being able to sit down and watch it. Uh, but the bar didn't have the, or the, the facility, the big kind of ballroom or whatever, didn't have a, um, didn't have a projection projector or a screen or anything where I could show it big. And that was a disappointment. And I said, well, where can I show it to everybody? They said, well, there's a TV down in the basement. So I went down to the basement that had a, a another bar <laughs> and uh, it had a big TV and I popped it in and, and just told everybody at the party, come on downstairs. We're going to, we're going to show the Christmas special. And uh, in the course of the, it's only a half an hour. It's really only, you know, 23 minutes long. So it was not that long. So in real time, I could, I was watching this, uh, everybody uh, looking around and kind of seeing how everybody was uh, taking it. And I noticed that the bartenders stopped serving and were just standing down at the, the end of the bar that was closest to the TV and staring at it. And they, and they were started kind of, they'd had their arms over each other's shoulders. That's so beautiful. Yeah, the they they just all were crying and hugging. <laughs> and That's so beautiful. <laughs> I know it was really neat. And I thought, wow, man, if these guys, these you know, these were tough bartenders working uh, a Hollywood club, so they'd seen everything, and they would be as cynical as you can imagine. And they were crying and and hugging. And I thought, man, this thing's going to be great. Kids are gonna kids are gonna be really moved by this. And that's the thing too, you know, I can, there, I can read so many comments. If I post about the Christmas show now, I can read comments from people who talk about what it was like to see it as a child. And uh, now I can get that kind of feedback that I couldn't get when it was a new show. You know, I, I wasn't able to find out how, I mean, except for kids that I knew, you know, the, the children of my friends and stuff, they could tell me what they thought of it. But, but in general, like, it's so much more fun now to, to hear the, comments of adults who are so much more articulate, you know, and, and, and it can, are taking that longer view. Yeah. And that like, Hey Arnold means a lot to me because it was just so, like I said, it dealt with real life stuff when mm -hmm. we needed it. Yeah. But what episode means the most to you? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I do, I do love that the the sort of you know parents trilogy a lot, and I, mostly because it, uh, I felt like I had to really kind of make that stuff up from whole cloth, and it was really on me. It wasn't so much, even though Antoinette Stella helped me write Parents Day, uh, Joe Purdy and Michelle Lamoureux helped me write uh, the journal, and then a really the a group of us wrote. Uh, the jungle movie. So there was a lot, I had a lot of help, but uh, I feel like the, you know, like it was on me to decide what Arnold's origin story was and to really kind of create his parents from whole cloth. So I'm proud of that. Also, I'm, I'm kind of relieved that they, they're so beloved because when I was doing them, I thought, well, what if these stink, you know, what if these really are not good. And the same thing for uh, Helga on the Couch, which I wrote. Oh, I love that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, in, in season four, I wrote Helga on the Couch 
for that same reason, I was like, I want to, Helga is the most, maybe, I mean, even, even more beloved than Arnold in a way. And, and uh, I had such a great relationship with uh, Francesca Smith, who voices her, where I could kind of, I could give Helga, I could give Franny anything to say as Helga and she could do it. So I wanted to do a, a, a Helga origin story as well. And, and the most fun of it was just getting into it, getting into the idea of her going to a therapist, which by the way, uh, the, the Nickelodeon execs kind of pushed back on that. That's why it took till season four to do it. I probably pitched Helga on the couch a, a year or two before that. And they were like, eh, you know, I don't think we like a story about Helga getting therapy. They just, they were kind of afraid. They, they felt like it was subject matter that was too sensitive. Um, and they didn't particularly like what I was doing either. When I, when they, when I was writing the drafts of Helga on the couch, they, they weren't super enthusiastic about it. And then of course it got made and that changes everything. When, if you can, if you can kind of hang in there and finish the episode and get it made and, and then show it, then all the questions of what it's going to be are over. And now you can just experience it for how it is. And then they were probably fine with it. And again, Helga on the couch, man. I've heard so many testimonials about Helga on the couch from people who said, I, I, when I was a kid, I was, I was either depressed or, uh, you know, I, ha I had issues that I, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to solve. And I was scared. I, I didn't know um, if there was something wrong with me. And I, I, I was scared to go see a therapist because I didn't want to, um, I didn't want the stigma of, of doing something like that. People make fun of me or think there was something wrong with me. And uh, they, they saw Helga on the couch and went, oh, Helga could do it. So can I. And so many, many stories about people who got therapy and uh, were really, really glad, of course. And, uh, you know, it, it, it helped them through, uh, you know, the worst time, you know, the worst, the worst time they'd ever had. So, uh, yeah, in, in retrospect, of course it was right to do Helga on the couch. And, and again, you know, Helga's story is, a, it's a very tall tale. I mean, remember she tells the, in, she tells the therapist about going, walking to preschool alone, making her own lunch and, uh, and get, putting on her own clothes and walking to preschool by herself because her parents were standing around the piano listening to Olga and completely ignoring her. And when you see it, it's like, ugh, man. That's like they're just breathtakingly bad parents. And, and Helga walking through the kind of mean streets and, you know, a dog takes her lunch and then a car goes, splashes through the curb and covers her in mud. And you're just like, oh, this is awful. This is like abuse. But, uh, you know, it's a cartoon. We, we, we had tremendous liberty to, to tell really crazy stories where crazy stuff happened and uh and we were free to do it because nobody was really minding the store that uh, we we did the third fourth fifth season with almost no oversight they just they were going on to other moving on to other things and they didn't really care what we were doing and so i think that's some of our best stuff that really shows you that they trusted the formula because hey arnold does have a formula yeah. Yeah. I think so too. They went, ah, oh, that works. You know, um, that we were, we were more uh, into story 
and for, wanted to make sure that our stories make sense than the other cartoons who were probably giving them more trouble. So, we, you know, we, I always felt like we were the good students. We were the, we, we were the students who were trying to get an A and we were doing our homework and, you know, turning in our stuff on time. And that, that was, that's how I wanted it to go. I thought, who needs trouble? Let's not, let's not, uh, let's not, you know, take too long and be late. Let's just get this thing done and, and move on to the next one because that's the deal. You know, I just really wanted to be professional about it when, when I was, a uh, when I was running Hey Arnold, I just wanted to, uh, you know, I, I took the, my duties as the producer of it very seriously. So how do you feel about disability inclusion and diversity inclusion within children's media? Well, it's like it has been a, a steadily improving in the time I've been doing uh, animation. And I have had a really long, I mean, I, I started working 40 years ago uh, for Will Vinton as a clay animator. And so that's how long I've been animating, a long time. And I, I, I can tell you, we thought we were being more diverse and inclusive than other stuff when we were making Hey Arnold. But uh, since then, it's much, it's much more, you know? And so- I. I don't think there was a character in a wheelchair on that on Arnold. Was there? I don't. I don't think so either. Um, I know. I was trying to. And that can, that cannot your that cannot your fault. I didn't notice that. Like, yeah, right. And you know exactly. I think in the nineties we were kind of taking baby steps to to do the things that now you know are probably a given. You know, like we we really do understand now that the business has been uh, not letting, uh, uh, you know, other voices in because it's been so dominated by just, you know, the usual, you know, white males and stuff. And, and it's, it's getting much better. And we know now that, that everybody kind of needs a plan to be more inclusive, you know, like, well, what are we going to do? If, if you want people uh, to be, you want directors who are not, all the same and you want the you know creators and directors and writers and artists to be coming from you know have different voices come from different experiences you have to kind of make it possible so so that's that's where it is now i think at least people understand that 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 work has to be done i mean i would have there are times as a kid where i didn't see myself represented on screen yeah, you don't see a kid in a wheelchair. Yeah, that isn't the butt of the joke, or you know that type of character. But I feel like, but at the same time, even though there wasn't a kid in a wheelchair or with a physical disability, the acceptance of the outsider with someone like Eugene or. Mm -hmm. That basically checked that box for me, regardless. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, we were we were not all the way there, but at least we were kind of making a start, which is how I felt about it, you know. And we we knew we knew that the experience that I, I what I wanted to show was I was living in Los Angeles when I got the chance to make Hey Arnold, and I wanted it to feel like have the diversity of Los Angeles, you know, even though it's set in some kind of mythical Northern city, 
uh, I wanted to have the same kind of diverse urban surroundings where you just could see all examples of humanity, you know? And that, and so that was, that was where we started. That's, you know, I wanted, I knew at least it had to be more representative of different kinds of kids than uh, what had gone before. Well, I want to thank you for just ushering in that diversity and inclusion. And I'm glad that that was such a focal point for you. Yeah. Guys. Thank you. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I'll tell you a little story when, uh, when we had gotten the show picked up and we were working on season one, it would have been that first summer of, of 95 was when um, Harriet the Spy, the very first uh, Nickelodeon movie came out. And they they said, hey, we're going to put Harriet the Spy in theaters. We're going to do a big push. Can we, yeah, that was, that was yeah, can we get the Hey Arnold pilot and put that as a five minute short in front of the movie? So I had to cut it down. It was about seven, that original pilot, the one that's on the uh, the Ultimate Collection. Yep. And I cut it down to five, and I put it up on in front of Harriet the Spy, and then I didn't see Harriet the Spy until we went to the premiere. And I was watching, and I was really laughing because Harriet the Spy is also very urban. Like, it takes place in a kind of a New York. Uh, the class is kind of improbably small you know there's only about 12 kids in the classroom instead of like a real classroom and they were all shapes and sizes and colors and i thought oh this is okay you know and hey arnold fits right into this uh nickelodeon uh, zeitgeist if you if you looked at harriet the spy you knew the kind of world that nickelodeon movies wanted to to present and hey arnold fit right in and in fact at the end of harriet the spy they all danced to a james brown tune yeah. Just like ridiculous ending where they're all dancing to James Brown. And I was like, that's funny. Arnold does his little don't hit me, I'll hit me to a, a fake James Brown. We couldn't afford James Brown. So we <laughs> we got we got a sound alike. And Jim Lang and I were totally trying to make a James Brown song when we made that tune. So uh I thought, okay, um, I think I've I think I found my uh my tribe. These people at Nickelodeon are gonna are gonna love what I do. And so it's true. And it, and I, you know, you don't, it's not forever. It's only until, you know, it isn't anymore. But, uh, you know, for that time that I was doing it, I knew I found a really great place to land. That is something that I never realized as a kid while watching it. That, that didn't happen until later. I was saying people realize and people notice that there is a deeper lens on the stuff you guys were doing. Yeah. Yeah, we were. Yeah, I, I, it, you know, everybody who gets a chance to make their own show, every show creator in this, especially in this setting, Nick and Cartoon Network and, and Disney and, and Warners. I mean, they've in their own way, they've all tried to let there be creator driven shows. You know, they still they still kind of they still check that box. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, we have creator driven stuff here. Um the cool thing about that was that they were they that would allow each creator to set up the cartoon, the world of that cartoon, the universe of that cartoon, its tone, you know, the, the way it sounded, the music, the, the art direction, like what this world was going to feel like. Was it going to be bright and and you know candy colored, or was it going to be dark and 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 moody? You know, these were all choices that we all got to make. 
and and we all got to do something different. So I I love that about the experience. I was really pretty free. You know, I, I mean, if they didn't like it, if I if I showed that first pilot in the first season, and they just didn't like it, they didn't get it, and the stories didn't work for them, that would have been it. You had to make something they liked. But on the other hand, I felt really free to do different a really different show with a different approach and different tone than the other guys, you know, they, the other ones were doing sillier stuff or, you know, I don't know, kind of just more kind of like cartoony and maybe more violent or, you know, crueler or things like that. Um, I just wanted to make, you know, my little Arnold universe and it, it didn't matter what the other people were doing. <laughs> <That's what> I... <laughs> Arnold was very, and I'm sure you've heard this, slice of life yeah yeah that sort of vibe like just that's really, yeah that's good i'm glad i'm glad that it it came across that way because we, we didn't know i mean we just we just sort of i would say the conversations that of what we were going to do for stories were really between me joe and Salabahair, steve vixton and and probably I, I leaned heavily into my my pal uh, Tuck Tucker, who was uh, responsible for boarding so many of the favorite episodes. And so between between Tuck and Joe and Steve, and then you know more people as we as the more writers came on and more artists came on in that little group, we were like, well, let's just make it about what childhood felt like. You know, Joe Joe and Salabahair, you know, you can tell we we sunk up but he really kind of wanted to go off and do something even more specifically like what he believed in. I remember Joe and Paul both saying when they went off to make recess, they were like, well, uh, you know, Hey Arnold's too kind of romantic for us, you know, like Helga and the intense, you know, unrequited love that the show's about and all those kind of monologues and that stuff. I think that was a little too silly for them. I think they wanted to do something that, that had, I, I think they liked, very high concept, like the rules of their world, you know, like the rules of recess. Work. The hierarchy. Yeah, they, they wanted to get into that stuff. And I was like, you know, I don't care so much about what happens in school. I want it to be about the the, the um, kind of a magic urban landscape that that the kids are free to explore. And they have this agency that real kids don't. You know what I mean? Like no one's telling Arnold, stay home, do your homework, you know. Arnold Arnold comes and goes. And and I tried to make it like they're all like that. They're like, oh, I'll meet you outside. You know, let's go, let's go meet somewhere after dark and and uh, you know, go on these adventures. So that was what I was going for. And you know, it, I think again, it's great. Joe and Paul, as creators of their own thing, they got to do their thing. And they were they're they're alike and yet quite different, right? Yeah. And I love what they they do too and yeah i know there's people have a lot of love for recess as well because agar if you watch tay arnold you watch recess like yeah, yeah but you're right i think you're right it's a not a companion piece but it's similar in yeah it's like the algorithm you know if you like this <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we've been having such a meaningful conversation and I really appreciate this time that you're spending with me and this is great. And now 
now we're not in touch. I can always go back to you if I want to have you back. And we're friends now. Which is, yeah. Which is great. But do you have any questions for me about what I do or my life? Or I just want to turn the table. Let's talk. Yeah. Like, like how you, how you said you were about two when it came on. Yeah. And you, uh, uh, where do you live? I live in New York. Oh, that's Island. right. You're you're upstate New York. That's right. Like the Long Island, yeah, Long Island. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So did when you watched it, did it feel New Yorky to you? Yeah, I mean, and, even down to the music, like that urban kind of jazzy, but also had the hip hop elements to it. it was great. Yeah, yeah, and I I think I think that trying to make it, I wanted it so every kid in uh every kid in in the country in america especially i mean i I, i'm very happy that it worked elsewhere but uh especially i was trying to write for american kids and and uh i figured that 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 a lot of kids were growing up in an urban environment not unlike uh los angeles and um could somehow find something relatable about it yeah i mean so that's why i wanted to ask you if you had any questions about my creative process or what I do, because I always love talking to creative people and what makes them kind of happy. And so Uh what do you, what do you want to know? Is there anything you want to know about me or? Yeah. What do you, do you, do you, are you an artist as well? Do you do draw or paint? I I can't really do that because of my physical limitations. Uh So I've been doing this podcast for over 12 years because when I was a young kid, all I would do is make fake radio shows in my uh-huh. bedroom. And just when the internet came out, came around that I could do this and sort of, I was doing podcasts before podcasting was a thing. And everybody, <laughs> everybody has a podcast now, but that wasn't the case. And honestly, I kind of, no offense to people that have a podcast, but some people are into it because they want to do it, and other people are into it as a step. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think I think podcasts are, are a, a kind of a wonderful end to themselves. And and isn't it cool how many people who, I mean, we're, we're really in a, a postmodern world now where, uh, People can talk about what they do in that kind of like, you, even if you hear like masterclass now, you think, oh, like the masterclass uh, uh, series that people can kind of listen to in a podcast in their car or they can uh, they can watch on their computer. And uh, now you just go, oh, yeah, uh, you can find out what David Lynch thinks about making films or, uh, you know, and, and I think it's, we're in a really wonderful time now. Many, many people who uh, have have done work in the last generation are available to kind of talk about what they've done. You know that series that's on, uh, I want to say, I can't remember who does it, but where uh, celebrities answer the most most asked questions on Google search. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Isn't that the I, best? I think yeah. Wired, Wired. Wired, you're right. It, it is Wired. And I don't know, and Vanity Fair does a cool thing too where, 
uh, your favorite actor uh, breaks down their career and talks about uh, how it was to shoot each of the movies they made. You know, I just feel like we're in a time that also that stuff is so readily available too. in a, in a weird way. It, what's bad about it is it's all kind of free, you know, in our minds, it's like, Oh yeah, I can go on YouTube. <laughs> Pull it up. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the, it's probably hard for everybody to figure out how to monetize their stuff. Everybody needs to make a living. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm really glad that stuff exists. And I think, uh, you know, if, if, uh, yeah, you had your reasons to, to want to do a podcast and uh, you have been doing it for a long time. So you know what's out there and 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 where this is going. It does seem like it's evolving, doesn't it? It feels like it's always going to be the next thing and the next. And one of the other things that I always try to drive home to people is that I never used to talk about my disability on my podcast. Mm-hmm. because I never wanted it to be the pity party, poor me, charity case approach. Mm-hmm. But then once I started talking about it and once I started opening up about it, it created a dialogue between me and the guest. Like, okay, what do you want to know? I'll tell you where I'm at, but if you want to know more, ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that you know the the interaction of of the interview process is, you know, the 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 asker and the answerer are are kind of that that goes back and forth. Because I hate interviews where it's like it's just that's what it is an interview. You and I are having a conversation right now. Mm-hmm. There's a difference. Yeah, yeah. I'm so thrilled that you are so giving with your time and so just so cool and just willing to talk to anybody who wants to get a hold of you. Like it's you love us just as much as we love your work. I wouldn't call myself I mean I'm a fan of your work, but now I consider you a friend and I that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? It's like, uh, there. Re- I mean, obviously, it virtually doing this stuff over over the internet is not the same as being in person. But you know, I mean, there is there is so much more access than there used to be. You really can you really can find out what people really think about stuff. I, and I I I know the internet's kind of stupid and uh, you know a lot of bad stuff. But I'd say the the the, the cool advantages of it outweigh the bad things, you know? We we really have a world of information at our fingertips now, you know? We really can find out how what everybody else is up to. So I have a couple more fun Hey Arnold questions before we wrap up. Okay. Now, people talk to you about favorite episodes, favorite bits and favorite moments, but is there a favorite line <laughs> that you're most not just because it's, that you're most proud of that you wrote <laughs> that I wrote okay right because I was going to say uh, I, I know people really love and like right we'll write a line and then we'll go this is working so well when Helga um, 
Helga gets the snow boots from Miriam. She puts them on and the ghost Pumoni song starts up again. And she runs outside and dances out in the moonlight. And then, and then she, she drops the note that had the shopping list on the ground and sees it. And the music goes burr, 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 down to nothing. And then she, um, she goes, Oh, not another moral dilemma, which I think is, is, uh, really one of the best lines we've ever done. And it, people love it when they hear her say, not another moral dilemma. It's got that kind of meta quality where, uh, you know, the, where we literally are like, oh, Helga has moral dilemmas. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so that's a favorite. Although I don't think that's my line. I, I don't know. I, maybe maybe that's Steve's. Let me think of one that I wrote. Uh, uh, I loved writing... I loved writing Helga's monologues for the very same reason, you know? And so, like, I, I remember we were trying... We Steve wrote the one in school play where Helga kind of explodes to Lila and tells her that she loves Arnold. I love Arnold. And, you know, I was like, well, okay. She told Lila, can she tell anybody else? Because those are so fun. And so I think the uh, Helga on the couch, the, the um, Helga's therapy stuff that ends in the, the, the kind of the climaxes in her telling, um, uh, a Dr. Bliss that she loves Arnold. I tried to top what Steve had written <laughs> in his and uh, wanted to be even a little bit more uh, hilariously over the top. So I think that Helga's monologue to Dr. Bliss, which is, I don't know if you remember, uh, Lang's score kind of imitated the 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 big uh, fin climactic finish of uh, A Day in the Life, the Beatles song from yeah. yep. Sgt. Pepper. And also, so you, you get that kind of, it builds to a big thing and then the giant E chord on the piano. And and uh, then you just cut to the outside and people that are walking down the street stop and look around and car alarms are going off. I so love it. I like, you know, I would say uh, that it's not really a line. It's more like a speech, but that's maybe my favorite. And I also love the one, the rooftop scene on uh, in the first Arnold movie when, when Helga and Arnold... Um, Helga and Arnold, uh, she confesses, and and how how dense he is, and and I I just remember Steve and I wrote that in a kind of a fever, <laughs> and uh, when we were done, I called Franny up at home and said, "Let me read this to you over the phone." <laughs> it's so good, you're gonna love this. <laughs> now this is nowhere near heartfelt, but one of the moments that always sticks with me is when Harold freaks out about wanting his yarmulke. <laughs> I just, just that whole bit of him freaking out. Yeah. And just, oh my, like, writing those insane little moments that only you guys could do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, the, all those that, all those things that we've described came after we'd been at it for literally years. And I would say, really, after we got the first few shows back, Downtown is Fruits, Field Trip, Eugene's Bike, Arnold's Hat, Stoop Kid, 
by the time we'd made the, the little pink book, by the time we'd made those first half dozen 11s and we had them in our hand and we could watch them and hear like how the music worked, how the mix worked, the vocal performances. And um, then we knew, we knew, you know, then we knew these characters. It was really easy and fun to write for Harold and for Helga and for, for uh, Gerald and Phoebe and Eugene because it was, it was, we knew it was okay. You know, we knew this is going to work. So that there's something very satisfying about writing those lines going, I think this will land. And like I say, now we can, you know, if I post a, a kind of a summary of a first season episode, there, you know, people will send in all these comments where you can tell they've, they've taken the, the story completely to heart. They've memorized everything and they, they can quote you back. Like we you know, like me doing a Monty Python sketch, like you know, uh, Holy Grail scenes from that where I know what everybody says, right? Yeah, I listen to it over and over. Um, kids that were kids then and are adults now, they can they can say back to me like a whole run of dialogue from from. An I mean, I still say to this day, I still go, "You keep the money," like <laughs> like, like this. Like this, like, <laughs> I know. I'd love to take credit for that. That's Steve again. <laughs> you, know, you know, Oscar was uh, Steve was basically a self. Yeah. So sadly, a couple of your beloved crew members have passed on. Mm-hmm. What are your memories of them, and how do you think they impacted? The oh, series? they're so so important. You know, like the, that original lineup. It was me, Steve, and Joe. Uh, Jim Lang and 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 the actors, you know, the people that we cast, they were so important. But I mean, that tiny group uh, kind of got it launched. And so I, I have so many really happy memories of hanging out with Steve uh, when it, it was the early days. And, uh, you know, it got more difficult as we went along. And Steve was a complicated guy and kind of had a very, he was a very private, a lot of stuff he kind of didn't want to reveal. But, um, uh, you know, in the early days when we were communicating really well, I think of of the good times with Steve. He and I sat up late one night and wrote uh, the simple things uh, for Mr. Wingo's concert. Oh, yeah. And you know, I had my guitar. Uh, Steve Steve sat there with me and we worked on the we worked on the, the lyrics together and, and really co-wrote those lyrics where I can't tell you who wrote what. You know what I mean? I know. We really collaborated on that one. And when when that kind of collaboration goes so well, like by the time we finished, it was like, oh, this will be a really cool country song. And I I got on the uh, the phone and it was midnight or something. And I called Lang's studio and he wasn't there. So I just left him a message on his voicemail where I said, hey, we finished the Mr. Wynn song. Here it goes. And I, I played it over the phone. And, and Lang called the next morning. He said, Hey, I got your message. I, I couldn't understand a fucking word, but it was really good. So <laughs> why don't you send me the lyrics so I know what <laughs> so I know what uh what you were saying. But so that you know, I think of that when I think of Steve, I think about uh, you know, the good times, the early days when we uh really collaborated. And he it was he's a very original thinker who uh who really contributed many of his ideas uh uh are are you know, the, the the whole Arnold Helga thing and Helga, you know, the, the monologuing Helga and, and her, her uh, you know, if you think about the early uh, stories like Hat, that was written by Steve. Um, that That's one of the early ones that shows you how 
just relentless Helga is in pursuit of a goal, which I think makes her a delightful character. She's so funny because she will, she'll do anything, you know, I mean, she, to try to get, you know, obviously we, the, to make a story funny, we'd have her lose something and, and it, maybe it ends up in the boarding house and she's got to get it. Um, you know, a lot of that came from my collaboration with Steve and then Tuck, um, what a what a sweet guy. He was such a friend. He, you know, we really hung out together and and uh we both had uh kids, so we would do things together as as two families. We'd go to the beach and I'd go boogie boarding with him at Redondo. Stuff like that. I mean, we were we were pals. And um uh, again, we finally finished. I kind of couldn't let him go. Like when I went to uh Cartoon Network, I had him, he and I directed uh the party wagon movie that I made for them and so, I mean, I kept trying to think of ways that I could keep working with Tuck, but finally he kind of went his own way just because I'd run out of stuff for him to do. And uh, the you kind of have to let people go. You have to let them uh, make their own way. Tuck, I know Tuck wanted to create his own show as well. So did Steve. Everybody kind of wanted to have the same shot uh, that I'd gotten. And who knows, you know, the luck or... Or, you know, kind of be in the right place at the right time. Uh, they they never, neither of those guys ever got to create their own show and uh, have the same experiences that I did with Arnold. But uh, it wasn't for lack of talent. You know, Tuck, Tuck was one of the most talented. He's just one of the greatest drawers I've ever seen. I loved his work. I loved, I loved watching him draw. I'd go pop in on his, in his office and see how he was doing on something just so I could watch him draw. You know, he was amazing. We couldn't have this conversation without talking about them because they're integral to the series. Yeah. And so let's fast forward to now. What are you working on? Oh, I actually am uh, my pal, Linda Semensky, who who greenlit uh, Dinosaur Train and, and who I've known since 1990 when I was working on Rugrats and she was a junior exec at, at Nickelodeon. She She left PBS a year ago year and a half ago, kind of during the end of the pandemic and um, uh, ended up at Duolingo, the, uh, the language app, do you know, Duolingo? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, uh, and so she's asked me to come help them uh, write their next generation stuff. So I'm actually working with Linda at Duolingo right now. <laughs> and I, I had just, I had just come off of a really bad uh, bump. Um, the, the merger of, uh, of, uh, Discovery Channel acquiring Warner Brothers, Cartoon Network, and Hanna Barbera and HBO Max uh, meant the end of my job there. I was working for Cartoon Network as an exec, uh, helping them put together a whole new uh, preschool division, and I, I was really enjoying that work. And I was actually planning to to develop my own stuff with them, and all that stuff just kind of went kablooey at the end of the summer. So I it was bad. It was like, oh man, I was seriously considering. Just not, yeah. You know, that well, maybe I'm not going to make anything after all. So um, I'm, I'm really glad that Linda came along with uh, some some more stuff to do. So I'm, uh, it got kind of outside of my usual, uh, out of my comfort zone, and and working on a language app that I happen to really like. I, I I've been playing. I'm an avid uh, Duolingo user. I, I'm studying uh, Italian and French. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you have to expand your horizon and yep. you might be surprised 
Yep, exactly. It's always good to meet new people and, uh, and, and learn new skills. So where can people connect with you? Where can people find you? I, I am um, always posting on Instagram and that's where I've kind of landed in terms of where I would post about what I was up to. And people, you know, my posts are again, 90% Hey Arnold, cause people like it so much. And I also have decided to start to uh, put my, uh, my Arnold collection of art up on uh, eBay. And uh, I, I'm, I'm toying with the idea of selling uh, like I'm, I, the art that I made over the last few years, Arnoldy stuff. Um, I'm making, I am making them into posters, which I want to sell on Etsy, but it's so far been kind of a pain. I, I, it both, both eBay and Etsy are a lot of work. And so I know I have the desire to do it, to get that stuff out there, but we'll see, you know, it's, I, and especially now that I've gotten really busy again, working for Linda. Um, I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, Maybe I'm biting up more than I can chew. But, uh, you know, for people who are interested in Arnold art, they've always wanted to collect Arnold art. Uh, people can, if, if I put stuff up, I'm posting about it on Instagram. What is your handle on Instagram? It's uh, Craig Bartlett, all one word. Cool. <laughs> Not too hard to find. So, right. seriously, thank you so much for this. And this has been absolutely wonderful. You're welcome. The DJ Bob Show. Pop culture, past and present.